Hey, man, well, it's good to be back with you, man. It's good to be back seeing people and not a camera. And here's the, uh, here's the task in front of us, man, and this isn't part of this series, but this is just between us. This is some family time. I think it's time for us to start leading well out of this mess that we've been in. And so I'm encouraged by you guys being here. Um, encourage your brothers in Christ at the church to, to get back and get involved, whether that's here or Thrive or um, Abide or whatever ministry that it is, but just encourage them to, to come back. Now, we know there's some, some unique circumstances, some special circumstances, and we want to understand that. Um, but, uh, you know, if you want to come back in a hazmat suit, man, we will welcome you back with arms distanced, right? But we want you back. We want to be back together as the body of Christ. So I'm, again, I'm encouraged to see a full room tonight, uh, to see you guys here. I'm encouraged to dive into this series. Um, and I'm just looking forward to see what, what the Lord is going to do as uh, hopefully we continue to put more and more of this pandemic behind us. Uh, but God has been good in the midst of it. He still allowed us to function as a church. He still allowed us to meet together as a church. He's still allowing us to worship and sing praises to him every single weekend as a church. In fact, just to encourage you, this past weekend, we saw the highest number of attendance that we've seen so far uh, since we've come back from the pandemic. And uh, so we were encouraged by that as pastors. Um, and we're looking forward to see, Lord willing, that continue to uh, grow in the coming weeks. Um, but yeah, let's, let's talk about this series. Going into this series called Atoned, and you may even be looking at the graphic thinking to yourself, okay, what is this really going to be about? Why are we doing a series on the atonement? Why are we doing a series that seems like maybe it's going to be more doctrinal and theological? Pastor PJ, didn't we just come out of the, the Sermon on the Mount where you told us that it was really a weakness in our lives or, or something that we needed to focus on to, to grow in our love and our affection for Jesus. And now here we are back in the theology and the doctrine, but I don't want you to put those things opposed to one another. And so that's part of the reason why we're doing this series is so that we see that a, an increase in our knowledge of God will hopefully fuel a love for God and a love for Christ as well. But there's other reasons why we're doing this. The first thing is, is I want us to be able to trace the theme of the glory of God through redemptive history. Specifically, yes, looking at the atonement, looking at the cross, looking at the satisfaction of the wrath of God through the death of Christ for us. And so we're going to look at that theme and, and hopefully at the end of the series be able to say this is how from Genesis 1-1 through the end of the book of Revelation, this is how God's glory is seen. And it is the trajectory that culminates, that climaxes at the cross and the empty tomb and then ultimately leads to its final realization in the new heavens and new earth. And so that's really what I want us to see, that this life that we live, and we're going to start looking at that even tonight, is really ultimately not about us at all, but it's about the glory of God. It's about the glory of Christ and what that looks like and what that means for us. So that's one thing that I want us to do, but I also want us to be able to gain a, a greater appreciation and understanding of the sovereignty of God. That's a doctrine that I think if I said, hey, do you believe that God is sovereign? We would all probably nod our heads in agreement and say, yes, I believe that God is sovereign. But what does that really mean, and, and what is that, how does that impact our lives, and why does that matter, and how does that factor into salvation, and how does that factor into evangelism, and how does that factor into eternity? How does that factor into everything that God has been doing from the beginning to the end? How can I understand more about God's sovereignty and appreciate more about God's sovereignty? The other thing I want us to be able to do in this 
series and through this series is to gain a, a greater understanding and appreciation of our salvation. As we look at this concept of the atonement, of Christ dying on the cross, satisfying God's wrath against us and God's merciful application of that death to us and crediting that death to our account. Hopefully, by the time we've gone through these next eight weeks, we will look back and say, wow, God, I love Christ more for what he's done in my life and for the salvation that he's worked in my life. And coming out of that, I hope that this also will give us a greater desire, evangelistic zeal for the lost in our lives. And that we'll start praying more for those who are lost in our lives. And if you're saying, man, I'm, I'm already praying for the lost in my life. Great. I hope that this series will fuel your prayers even more specifically for the lost in your life. And I hope that this series will lead to you praying for open doors to share the gospel with the lost in your life. And not just praying for, but finding open doors because God is going to be faithful for that. How can I be so confident? Because that's the only reason we're here still right now because there's nothing else that we can do better while we're on earth that we couldn't do better in heaven, aside from to be on mission for the Lord, to share the gospel with the lost. So even as we're looking at the, at the doctrines of God's sovereignty over something like salvation, it's going to, Lord willing, in us, create a greater desire to go out and see more people saved. And right away, you might be thinking to yourself, well, aren't those things kind of incompatible with each other? The fact that God is totally sovereign over salvation, over the application of the atonement, and yet you want us to go out and be fired up to evangelize as a result of this. And here's the reasons why. If we go to Romans 10, right? Paul says, everyone who does what will be saved. Calls on the name of the Lord. And then Paul says, but wait a minute, how are they going to call on him in whom they have never heard unless, unless somebody what? Preaches to them, right? And how are they going to preach unless they are sense. And Paul's talking about all of us in that context as those that have been commissioned to go with the gospel, to be the, the, the ones who have the, the beautiful feet that, that are proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Christ to see more saved. And so what that does is that tells me that yes, God is completely sovereign over the salvation of the lost, and yet he uses us to work out his sovereign plan to bring the lost to saving faith in Christ. And you and I don't have election radars, predestination radars built into us. And thank God that we don't, right? Because no matter who it is in your life, your loved ones, your coworkers, your neighbors, as long as they're still tomorrow, we can wrestle with the Lord in prayer for their souls and we can be diligent to share the gospel with them, never knowing when it is that God might remove the blinds and open their eyes and reveal that Christ is indeed their savior. So that's where we're going with this series. That's why this series to focus on the glory of God. And God is most glorified at the cross. God is most glorified through the application of the cross and the atonement through repentance and faith and through seeing lost saved. And we're going to start in Colossians 1, 16. Colossians. Now you might be thinking to yourself, Pastor PJ, you said we're going to be covering the scope of redemptive history from Genesis 1 through the end of Revelation. And here you have us dropping into the middle of the Pauline letters and you're not even at the beginning of the middle of the Pauline letters, you're in verse 16 of chapter one in Colossians. What gives? How does this line up? Well, I think it's appropriate for us to begin here because in this verse, I think we see one of the most clearly defined statements of anywhere else in scripture about what God is ultimately about, what he has been doing, what he is doing, and what he always will be doing. Colossians 1.16 reads this way. It says this. It says, 
For by him, and the him in this context is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created for him, or through him rather, and for him. All things were created through him and for him. Again, this verse helps us to, to wrap our minds around what God has been doing, what he is doing, what he always will be doing. And there's three key prepositions in this verse that are going to really set the, the, the stage for our time together this week. Three key prepositions that we're going to look at that are going to feed into our points this week and that help us understand this verse and what Paul was really saying here. In the broader context of, of Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 down through verse, really verse 20, uh, 21 even, Paul is, is in this almost hymn-like praise of Jesus. He began back in verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He goes on and makes amazing statements like in verse 17, he's before all things, in him all things hold together. That Christ is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, that he might have first place. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. But back in verse 16, Paul begins by addressing this subject of creation. And he tackles it by looking at these various prepositions. The first thing he says is this. He says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. That word by in the Greek, it's a, it's a preposition that has some flexibility. It's the, the preposition en, E-N. And that preposition can be translated like the ESV and like actually quite a few other translations, English translations translate it here, which is by, or it can be translated as in, I-N. And while the ESV translates it by here, it, it seems like it, it may be better for us to understand this as in him all things were created. See, if we take the approach of the ESV and we say, well, no, this is by, B-Y, if, if this is for by him, all things were created. If you look later on, it'll say that through him, all things were created. And so that's really saying the same thing, isn't it? If Paul's going to start verse 16 and say, by Jesus, all things were created. And then later he's going to say, through Jesus, all things are created. That's a little bit redundant, isn't it? And maybe we could argue, well, it's a pretty significant fact that Jesus is the agent of the creation of everything. And it is a significant fact. We'll get there. But I think Paul's saying something different at the beginning here. I think when we read this, it's better to read it for in him, in Christ, all things were created. If we think about that phrase in Christ and just think about some of the other uses in the book of Colossians. In Colossians 1, 4, we read this. Since we heard of your faith, in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. And then he goes on. But it's that same Greek preposition there, E-N-N, but it's translated there as in. Colossians 1.14. In whom, in Jesus, in Christ, we have redemption in the forgiveness of sins. Again, the same setup there, the same preposition, same context. In Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1.17. And he, Jesus, is before all things and in Christ, all things hold together. Again, in, not by. In Christ, all things hold together. And then finally, Colossians 2, 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. 
walk in him. This idea of, of being in Christ, it, it's a little bit ambiguous for us, isn't it? What, what did God mean? What did Paul mean that, that he's created all things in Christ? It seems like that's a little bit fuzzy for us to try to wrap our minds around that. And there's a, a commentator whose name is, is Doug Moo, Douglas Moo, and he agrees on that. In, in commenting on this verse, he says that that vague language by Paul, that in Christ language is maybe intentionally am, ambiguous there. Because what Paul is referring to is that everything that has been created has been created in reference to Jesus with direct connection to Christ. That nothing that has been made, nothing in God's universe, nothing in all of creation was created apart from Jesus. That Jesus was a part of everything that has been done. That it's not like Jesus was left in the, the back room of the Trinity while the, the Father was doing some creative work over here. And Jesus walked up and said, wait a minute, what did you just do? Everything was part and parcel of the Trinity as a whole and focusing specifically on Jesus. Everything has been created in Christ, that he has been intimately involved in that. And so when you think of creation, and this is again setting the stage for this whole idea that everything that God does is always for his glory, has always been for his glory, is now for his glory, will always be for his glory. As we think about the beginning of everything, we go back to Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We so often read that and we think the Father, but what Paul is challenging us to do in this passage today is think Christ as well, Jesus, the Son as well. That this was no deistic, hands-off, winding up of the divine universe and then just let it unfold like the, the divine watchmaker. That this wasn't a, a cosmic happy accident, like God is some gigantic Bob Ross in heaven that is like, oops, look at that, it's a bird now. And that this is not some big bang that took place away from the divine purview, the sovereign purview of God. No, this is intentional. Everything that God has done from the word go of creation has been intentional. And it's been intentional regarding in reference to Jesus in Christ. Our first point tonight is this. Understand that God created all things with intentionality in Christ. Understand that God created all things with intentionality. There was a purpose from the very beginning, and that purpose from the very beginning, according to Colossians 1.16, had Christ written all over it. In Christ. You know, if you think about your, your home, there are things maybe in your home that happen outside of your awareness and your knowledge. For instance, thinking about my own house, I know that if I took down all of my drywall and removed the ceiling on the second story, I have other things living in my house besides my family. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? And in fact, there has been creative activity that has taken place in my house outside of my understanding. Creative activity that I don't like to think about. But you guys get the point, right? That there are things that go on in our sphere that we have no idea about. Well, that's not so with God. Nothing has taken place apart from his understanding. Nothing has taken place apart from his knowledge. Nothing has taken place apart from his will. And that includes not just the Father, but as we're seeing in Colossians 1.16, that includes Christ as well. That from the word go, it's all been done in reference to, in relationship to, in correlation to Jesus if you think about what it looks like or what it should look like to live in this world in Christ, 
I think we can go back to the garden before the fall and say, well, that was ideal. As God created the world, he created the world with this intention that sin would not be part of it, though it was part of his sovereign plan, decreed will versus permissive will. But certainly we can look around at our lives right now and say, well, God may have created everything in Christ, but we don't find that we're living very well in Christ anymore, are we? This world that we live in is broken. Creation is broken. We in this state should be more aware of that than anybody else, right? The wildfires that are taking place. But then you look at the opposite side of the country and there's like 18 hurricanes lined up to take aim at the, the East Coast right now. This world is, is broken. This world is not this, the same quality in Christ as it was at the, the word go when God first said, let there be light. When God first formed man out of the ground that this world is broken. And yet at the same time, what we need to understand and what Paul is going to be arguing through Colossians 1.16 is that God, in working all things for his glory, even in spite of the fall, is still moving everything towards the ultimate magnification of the glory of Christ. And now you and I are trying to learn and figure out and stumble through what it looks like for us to live our lives in Christ in the midst of a broken and fallen world some diagnostic questions for us to, to think through. When I think about in Christ, what does that look like? Well, a few things that we should think about, just a few spheres that we should think about how we're living in Christ is this. Is your family in Christ? Is your work in Christ? And the third one is your free time in Christ. In other words, are all these spheres, do you live your life in reference to Jesus, in the sphere of your relationship to Jesus? Is, is that what permeates all of these different areas of your life? And these are just three that I picked up, but you could look at others. How about your neighborhood? How about your, your retirement? We could go into to all kinds, your church involvement. Is that in the sphere of being in relationship to Christ? And maybe you're thinking to yourself, okay, that's still a little bit fuzzy. Okay, let's dive deeper. Family. What's your purpose for your family, men? When you think about your family, and I know not all of you have saved family members, but even if you don't have saved family members, what's your purpose for them? What's your purpose for your family? What's your goal for your family? When you're making decisions for your family, what's behind those? What about your priorities for your family? As you're leading your family, how are you leading your family towards Jesus? How uh, could, could you be leading your family, teaching your family, shepherding your family and saying, look, as we look at our priorities as a family, Jesus is all over them. Because remember what Paul said in Colossians 1 there, that Christ might be preeminent. First place, not just in your daily checklist, but first place in everything. So as you're thinking about your, your priorities for your family, it's not as though you think about, okay, well, We've got church number one because we're Christians and then we're gonna go with family time and then work and then vacation. No, it should be Jesus in church, Jesus in family time, Jesus in vacation, Jesus in cleaning up around the house. Jesus, he should permeate all of it. What's the main identity of your family? Is it something that you found out through 23andMe or whatever that genealogical website is where you spit in a cup and send it to the Mormons? 
Or is your identity as a family, hey, we are followers of Jesus Christ. Christ is honored in our house. Our neighbors are going to know that we are followers of Jesus. Are you in Christ in your family? Second, how about work? Your workplace. Similar start to that. this diagnostic process here is, is what's your purpose for working? Where does Jesus factor into the reason that you're at the job that you're at? Does he factor into the reason that you're at the job that you're at? What are your priorities in working? Is it a 501k that you're waiting for it to fill up high enough that you can just say I'm done and, and retire? Retirement's a great thing. I'm not trying to slam retirement at all. It's a great thing. But again, if Christ is preeminent, it should be Christ in that process, right? Or maybe you're working for a better house. You're working for a better car. You're working to put your kids through college. You're working because you're bored otherwise. Still, Christ should be in that. He should be pervading our workplace. And then your identity. How are you known at work? What's your identity there? Well, I'm, I'm a hard worker and everybody knows I'm a hard worker. That's great. Do they know that you're a Christian hard worker? Well, I'm, I solve problems. Everybody knows I'm a, I'm a problem solver. That's great. Do they know that you're a Christian problem solver? Do they know that you love Jesus? Is, is your work a place in Christ? Free time. Again, what's the purpose? Your downtime. What is the purpose of your downtime? Is it wrong to have free time, downtime? No, it's not wrong to have free time or downtime. Is it wrong to watch a, a game on TV? No, I watched the Dallas Stars advance to the Stanley Cup last night. I'm super excited about that. That's not a problem, but you have to ask yourself the question, what am I doing in my free time? How am I redeeming this for Christ? How is this beneficial? How is this glorifying to Christ? What are your priorities in your free time? Is it all about self or are you using your free time for others as well? And then last, what's eternally significant about your free time? When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, which all of us will, 2 Corinthians 5.10 makes clear how much of our free time is going to pass through as reward and how much of our free time is going to pass through as stubble and hay that's going to burn up. If we're living our, our lives and our free time in Christ and that's going to result in, in quite a bit positive on that back end. So in Christ, hopefully these are helpful diagnostic questions to that, that question that we have to ask ourselves, am I living my life in Christ? And God wants us to answer that in the affirmative, of course, because he's created everything in Christ and he's redeemed us now as Christians to live our lives now in Christ. But he's still moving He's still moving this world, not just in Christ, but he's also telling us in Colossians 1.16 that he created everything through Christ. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Let's talk about this concept of all things for a moment. And Paul gives us a list here. The first one, he says it in heaven and on earth. Now, I put the pronunciation up there because I didn't know how to pronounce that word before this week. But it's a word that basically means, and it's hendiatus is how you pronounce it. At least that's how the dictionary.com speaker button told me to pronounce it. 
but basically a hendiadis is, it's two concepts like heaven and earth that means to encompass everything in between. So it's a rhetorical device and, and that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying that, that God created everything. This is a summary statement right off the bat. All things means everything. Things in heavens, things spiritual and things on earth, things physical. And he continues that idea. He says visible and invisible. Things not just on heaven, in heaven and on earth, but also the, the, the things that I can see and the things that I can't see. The material things, the spiritual things. God created all of those things through Jesus. Thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities are, are the spiritual forces, the spiritual realms. And you're thinking to yourself, well, why is Paul spending so much time focusing on the spiritual here? Well, that has to do with Colossians as a whole. Because there was a, a heresy attacking the Colossian church, which was suggesting almost in a Gnostic sense, although it predated Gnosticism, so we, we, we can't call it Gnosticism by its truest sense, but this heresy was suggesting that the, uh, the, the true Christians would have these visions and these elite mystic, mystical experiences where they had a, a higher level of consciousness to, to see these visions and dreams. And Paul's reminding them, and he's setting the stage for us. He's going to combat that heresy later. He's saying, no, look, God created it all through Jesus. All things were created through Jesus. All things. Through. In the Greek, it's the word dia. It's a, a preposition that, that is a preposition of means. He is the agent. He's the one. God spoke. Jesus is the agent that carried out the work. Without Christ, there is no creation. Without Jesus, there's nothing that is created that has been created. That's what John 1.3 says, right? Dan Wallace is a, a, a Greek scholar, I think he gets a little overambitious, a little excited about prepositions because he says this. He says, prepositions show how the verb connects to various objects. The realities expressed by such connections are at times breathtaking. I wouldn't go that far. I don't know if I can get as excited about Greek prepositions as Dan Wallace here saying they're breathtaking, but they're significant for us. They're incredibly significant for us theologically. And we need to pay attention to them, especially when we see them in relation to Jesus and in relation to God, in relation to the Holy Spirit. We need to, to stop and think about what is this really saying? And this preposition is connecting a, a couple of concepts here. It's connecting the verb there, what? What's the verb? Created. And it's linking it then to the object that actually comes before it, which is all things. And that link together is there through him. So this preposition is, is linking a major concept. It's creating a major doctrinal concept for us that Jesus created everything. That all things were created through Christ. That nothing that is was not created but through Jesus. As we think about doctrine and theology, a couple things that Colossians 1.16 affirms for us. Number one is the authority of Jesus. When I read that Jesus created everything, that he was the agent of creation over everything. Look, if I create something, that means what? I, I own it, right? My son is all too aware of creating his own Lego creations and he's got little brothers that usurp his rightful lordship over the Legos and they come in and they break them. And that's not their right. But if he, if he breaks his Lego creations, well, that's fine. Why? Because he's the creator. He's the Lord. He's got that right. Paul's telling us that Jesus is the Lord over all creation, that he is the agent of creation, that he is the Lord over all of creation. So it affirms the authority of Christ. The second thing it affirms is the deity of Christ. 
Because if Jesus is creating all things, that only can imply what? That Jesus is God. That Jesus is God. John 1, 1 through 3, which says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he goes on to say, All things that have been created were created by the Word. Nothing that exists was not created by the Word. Affirmations of his deity. See, this next phase of Paul's argument is that part of God's intentionality that we talked about in point one there is that all of creation would recognize that Jesus is the agent of creation and respond correctly with the worship that he's due. That's point number two tonight. Gratefully worship Jesus as the God of creation. Gratefully worship Jesus as the God of creation. If you think about fine craftsmanship and the craftsman who created it, when he's laboring over a, a piece of fine furniture and he's got the, the planer and he's going over that, over that, that angle and that, the, the top of the, the piece over and over again, trying to smooth it out just right, trying to get the, the, the exact look that he wants. And then maybe he finishes the piece and then he begins the staining process. And the staining process is so painstakingly laborious until he's got the color just the place that he wants it. And it's even throughout the entire work. And then he's, he's done the hard work of, of presenting it there. And people come in and look at that piece the craftsman doesn't want people just to be amazed by the piece itself. He wants them to be amazed by what? Him. He wants the people to make the logical connection between the piece that he's crafted and the craftsman who made it. Well, on a much grander scale, our Lord and Savior was the craftsman of creation. And he wants us to be enamored, not just with his work, but with him. To be amazed, not just with his, his creative activity, but with his identity as the creator. I don't know if you've ever read Psalm 19 and thought of Jesus. Psalm 19, just to jog our memories, at least this section of it says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. My guess is if you're anything like me, even this week, I was convicted this week in preparing for this, how many times I've just thought about, yeah, the father. The heavens declare the glory of the father. But if we're understanding what Paul is saying here, it's not just the, the glory of the Father. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his, notice that word, handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there's nothing hidden from its heat. Is that about the father? Yes. Is that about Jesus? Yes. And so as we read that, we have insight that David didn't have when he wrote that. We have a better understanding of God as the Trinity that David didn't necessarily possess when he wrote that. And we can read this and appreciate that, yes, this is about the Father, but the handiwork of creation, as we understand Colossians 1.16, is also about the Son. Or how about Romans 1? If we read Romans 1, 19 through 20, thinking about Jesus for what can be known about God, about God the who? God the Father? Yes. But also God the Son. 
What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How? His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Well, what is Paul telling us? That Jesus was instrumental in the creation of the world. In the things that have been made. Made by who? By Christ. So they are without excuse. Jesus is the creator God. How about John 1.3? I referenced it a couple times, but here it is for us. All things were made through him. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist exist. Now we're personalizing it even more. We've been talking about creation, but now we're driving down into us. That the son is the instrument of creation of, of you and I, you and me. Hebrews 1, 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Long ago, let me back up verse one. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he also created the world. When we read passages like this, Colossians 1.16, John 1.3, 1 Corinthians 8.6, Hebrews 1.2, it helps us to understand that, that Jesus is God and that God has created everything through Christ, that Christ is the agent of creation and as such he's due and worthy of our worship, our praise. And if you're like me, you often worship him because he's your savior. You often worship him because he's Lord, because he's God in general. But I wonder how often are we moved to worship Jesus by the creation that we see around us? In a section of Colossians, again, that is so intensely focused on exalting Jesus, on worshiping Jesus, Paul here spends an entire verse of this hymn praising Christ as creator. And so as you think about the beach or the mountains or the skies or your wife or your kids or your family, as you think about all of those are examples of testimonies of the work of God, the creative work of God that he has accomplished through Christ. And he's done it so that we would worship him. Think it through a little bit of of maybe, okay, how do I... What do I do with this? I don't know if y'all use a a prayer journal or not. Some of you may. Some of you have never done that. Others of you have started to do that and then stopped doing it. Regardless whether you do or not, let me just challenge you and encourage you this week. If you could just try to be intentional about spending some time looking at God's creative activity in your life and praising Jesus as the instrument of that creation. Giving him the glory that he's due even starting your prayer time each morning by thinking about something that God has created through Christ that you've encountered recently, that you've seen recently, and maybe it's your family members, maybe it's the sky outside, maybe it's the beach, maybe it's whatever, a a nice cup of coffee in the morning, that God created a world where coffee exists, right? Praise Jesus and worship him for that. I think we see an example of this in Psalm 139. Again, did David know Jesus? No, but... Was David praising Jesus here? I think so. Because David says this in Psalm 139, 13 through 16. Here, it's up on the screen for you. 
He says to God, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Now, if I understand Colossians 1.16 correctly, who knit David together in his mother's womb? Jesus did, right? Through whom all things are made. I praise you. See the conclusion there in verse 14. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Why, do, why is David praising God? Because he has created him. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So David is praising the Father, but he's also praising the Son because of this creative activity. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities, all things were created through him and, what's the last preposition for us? For. And this is where Paul's argument in 116 reaches its, its pinnacle. That everything was created for Christ. In the Greek, this is a preposition called eis. E-I-S is how it would transliterate. And it's one that is translated most often with the, the emphasis of direction. So it's either toward or to or into or in, or in this case, for. But the, the for carries the idea of, of, of direction behind it. So that Paul is basically saying this, everything that has been created has been created toward Jesus as its goal, into Jesus that, that directional movement towards Christ, that it's all going towards Christ for Jesus. It aligns with Revelation twenty two thirteen, where Jesus says this. He says, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the what? The end. I'm the beginning and the end of everything, he says. Doug Moo again says this. He says, Christ stands at the beginning. Christ stands at the beginning of the universe as the one through whom it came into being and he stands at its end as the goal of the universe. Everything is moving towards Christ. Everything is about Jesus. Everything is about the son. The goal of this universe and everything in it, including you and me, is to glorify Christ, to exalt Christ. We find this elsewhere in scripture. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.10 that God's plan for the fullness of time was to unite all things in Christ. That God's purpose for everything in human history, for all of creation, is to bring it all into subjection and submission, unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And then there's this great passage in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 through 28. Paul says, then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in, in all. You may have the word subjection rattling around your brain there trying to, to figure this out, what Paul's talking about. It is a little bit beefy and wordy there. But basically, this is the scene of, of the very end when Christ is 
magnified and exalted by the Father, and then Christ in turn turns and, and magnifies the Father. It's, it's the culmination. Again, it's everything moving towards Christ. Philippians 2, we know the passage, right? The great kenosis passage that Jesus did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped or held onto, but what? He emptied himself. And he takes on the form of a servant being found in the appearance of a man. He humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. But then we read in verse nine through 11, therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Let me ask you, has that day yet happened? No, it's still yet future. And that's the day that we are all moving towards. Guys, things like global warming and other things have been all over the news recently, right? It's like everywhere you turn, hey, this is real, this is science, stop burying your head in the sand. I know where this world is headed. And it's gotten an appointment where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and the ozone is not gonna blow up before then. That day is coming, right? That's where we're all moving. We are all moving. Your story is about God moving you and everything in your life, whether you are for him or against him. Let me say that again. Whether you are for him or against him, God is moving everyone towards Christ. That's the plan for everything, to unite all things under him, to subject all things to him, that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because of point three tonight, and that is this. The reality is that everything is ultimately about God's glory. And for you and I, we need to humbly accept that fact, to humbly accept that everything is ultimately about God's glory. And what's amazing here is, is just the, the unity in all of this. Because you may be saying, okay, but Pastor PJ, we're in Colossians 1.16. This is about Jesus. This is all about Jesus. And it's created through him and for Jesus. But now you're telling me that it's about God's glory. How does that all work? Well, let me go back. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 again. When it's talking about all of this, notice what happens there at the very end. When all things are subjected to him, the son, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in, in all. See, in a final act of subordination, the son will place himself in subjection to the father at that final day so that the father might receive all of the exaltation and all of the glory. Maybe it's a little bit more clear even in, in Philippians chapter two. Because it says, therefore, at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, what? To the glory of the Father. So really, there is no distinction here in the end. To glorify Christ is to glorify the Father. And that's why Paul can write, that's why God can say through Paul that look, everything is moving, everything in all of created history, all things that have been created in, by, through, for Christ. All of it is moving towards the glorification of Jesus, which is ultimately going to result in the glorification of the Father. That's what our lives are about, men. 
Everything in our life is about the glory of God. Everything in this world is on schedule for the glory of God. Everything. And what we're going to find in this series, because you may have your objections, and I understand that, because you may be sitting there thinking about, but yeah, but what about men like, men like Hitler? What about men like Bin Laden? What about the men who got on the planes and flew those planes into the two towers? What about them? Were they on schedule for the glory of God? And, and here's what I want to say, and I think this may sit difficultly. Is that a word? Sure. This may be hard for us to, to process right now, but I want to answer that question. Yes, they were on schedule for the glory of God. And I want to suggest to you that right now, in their current situation, God is being glorified. See, because it all comes back to the cross. At the cross, the wrath of God was exhausted upon his son for those to whom he would apply his mercy and his grace. To those that would not bow the knee this side of eternity, confess this side of eternity, of eternity that Jesus Christ is Lord, God is still glorified through his wrath being poured out on them for all of eternity. That's hard. Because every single one of us in this room, I am sure of it, have loved ones that either right now don't know Christ or who have died without knowing Christ. And I'm in that same position. And if you men want to be able to do something about that, the only thing you and I can do about that is go to the ones that are still here and beg, plead, implore. As the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21, or 5, yes, 5.20, sorry. Implore, be reconciled to Christ. Bow the knee now, not then. The atonement. Everything has been created for Christ. You know, I've talked about Michelangelo and the David statue quite a bit. I need to, to get a mini one for my office and maybe put a grass skirt around it or something. But uh, you guys, y'all have heard me say this if you've been with me for any period of time, that, that the, the piece of marble that Michelangelo inherited to carve the statue out of was just that it was inherited. Two others, including Donatello, the other Ninja Turtle, had tried to carve David from this block of marble. And they said the marble was too brittle and it was too ugly. It had too many veins running through it, and it was too pocked. It had the, all these little holes in the marble. They said, we can't work with this. So it was shoved into a courtyard, and it was left in the courtyard. And then finally, Michelangelo was commissioned. They said, hey, you can give a shot at this. So Michelangelo took what was left, and over the course of three years, with painstaking exaction, with every hammer stroke, chisel stroke, sanded, and did whatever else you do when you sculpt things, he was thinking about the finished product. And you'll notice that we know who carved David, don't we? Why? Because Michelangelo wanted the glory. Or go to the Sistine Chapel. 
Some of you have probably been there. I've never been there before, but I've seen the pictures of it. And you look up at this magnificent work of art that, that stretches across this entire ceiling. And you look at that and you think to yourself, okay, four years on rickety scaffolds, mixing his own paint, plotting out the map, considering where he's going to put every single character, leaving room at the center for that picture of God and Adam. And he's, he's doing all of this over four years. And at the end of it, guess what he doesn't do? Well, don't tell anybody I did that. No, everybody knows Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel. Why? Because Michelangelo what? Wanted the glory. If we understand that with artists, how much more should we understand that with God? He's created everything, including you and I. You and me. He's created us. He's created the world that we live in. And guys, he signed his name because he wants the glory. That's what this series is going to be about. That's what this life is about. That's what this book is about. And I pray that it will be beneficial to us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for that reality that you are the good creator God who has formed us, made us, created us. Lord, not without purpose, without intention, not randomly, not just saying, hey, good luck, navigate your way through this world, but you've created us to be image bearers who glorify you. God, we confess that we are so distracted by the trinkets of this world and we are so lured away by the offers of this world to, to become glory thieves, to, to glorify ourselves instead of you. We confess that, Lord, and we want to turn from that, repent from that, and just pray that you would give us the, the grace and the, the, the mercy, the steadfast love, that, the patience that you have towards us, Lord, to, to tomorrow glorify you a little bit better than we did today and the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. Lord, we thank you for Christ. God, I am so grateful that in your plan to glorify yourself, you included the cross. How good and kind and loving you are that that's the case. And that right now you have given us time, time to go out with the gospel, time to take the gospel to those in our lives who don't know Jesus, time to, to share the good news of faith in Jesus Christ and forgiveness of sins that we can have there. So Lord, I pray that we would, even this semester, that we would be on fire for Christ and share the gospel with as many people as we possibly can and that you would be kind to save souls. Lord, we know it's part of your sovereign plan and yet we know according to the word of God, according to Romans 10 and other passages that you use us as your mouthpiece in that process. Lord, what a privilege. I pray that you'd be about that work in our lives, Lord, and bear much fruit as a result. In Jesus' name, amen.